Well, good morning. Welcome to Green Tree Community Church. My name is Tom Ricks. I'm one of the pastors here at Green Tree, and we are happy to have all of you here with us this morning worshiping. Uh, we're going to continue in our study in Romans this morning. We're going to be in Romans chapter 11. We're going to finish up chapter 11, uh, which brings to a conclusion the main body of theology in Romans, and then we're going to jump into chapter 12 next week, and we're going to be in application for, uh, for quite some time. Uh, but before we jump into the sermon this morning, I was sitting at my desk yesterday morning. I was working through uh, some of the details and just kind of kind of cleaning it up a little bit. And I got a, I uh, received an email from Nancy Pratt, who is with our Joplin team this weekend, uh, down in Joplin, serving. As you know, we've said as a church, we, we've taken the, the two years and we're about two-thirds of the way through our first year uh, in visiting Joplin and helping with a tornado uh, clean up and repairs on homes, and uh, we had our fifth trip this last weekend. Well, on Friday, well, while our team was working, the local TV news station showed up, channel uh, or NBC news station showed up, and they did a report on our guys working. So we're going to show you that real quick. A group from the Gateway City is helping paint the town. After several trips to Joplin, one volunteer now feels like he's part of the community. KSN's Tyler Pargin reports. Doug Pope is a real estate developer from St. Louis. This is his fourth trip to Joplin. It's the spirit of the victims that keeps him coming back. Very, they'll stop you in the stores and they thank you, and that's certainly not necessary. Um, but it's just that people they need help. They need help getting back on track, and their their spirit is there and it's willing. You know, they want to uh, to lift themselves back up, to put themselves back in the map and back on the map and and back in production. Doug is joined by other members of the Green Tree Community Church. They're painting this home on Missouri Street while painting. Doug McKinnis thinks about the family who lives here. Doing a peaceful job painting, so I have a lot of time to, to think as I'm painting, and I, I just kind of think about the people that we're helping, even though I, I don't know them. I try to put myself in, in their shoes. I understand that the family we're working for has children. I, I think of my three kids at home, and uh, if I were in a similar situation, um, it'd be great to have people help me out. I believe we're made to serve. Um, we're, uh, God has given us a, a mission besides being selfish and self-involved, we need to give to others. And whether it's at a home on the home front, giving to uh, homeless or the needy or just my neighbor, um, this is just an opportunity where there's just massive widespread needs. The goal is to have everyone in the church come down here. That's our goal before it's all done. Doug has set a lofty goal. He says he owes it to the victims who continue to inspire him every trip. In Joplin, Tyler Farch in your hometown news. Doug looks pretty good there, doesn't he? It's like, hallelujah. <laughs> I teased a little bit. He was in the first service. Um, we don't show you that to go, oh, let's pat ourselves on the back. Isn't that great? I actually show you that to remind us of the commitment that we've made uh, and the opportunity, if we haven't gone yet, to go. And so I would strongly encourage everybody to, to um, look at your schedule. The next trip is already planned. It's the last weekend in April. You leave on a Thursday night. You're back on a, on a Saturday night. It's, it's 48 hours. And obviously, you can see that we are making a difference in a lot of people's lives. So if you haven't had the chance to sign up yet, we want you to get involved and go to Joplin at least uh, once before we're, before we're finished with that partnership. Now, on to Romans chapter 11. We're going to be looking this morning at verses 25 through 36. Uh, anybody in here love a good mystery? I love mysteries. I love to read mysteries. I love to uh, watch them, whether it's a TV show, whether it's just like an hour-long kind of cop show on TV, or whether it's a movie. I have always loved mysteries. I was introduced to Agatha Christie when I was probably in about eighth grade, not personally, but 
her work when I was in about eighth grade. And I, I think probably by the time I graduated from high school, I know by college, I had read everything that she had written with her Poirot and Miss Marple. And I mean, she just was a fascinating whodunit writer. Same with Sir Arthur Conan Doyle and uh, his Sherlock Holmes character. And, and uh, maybe you've seen the most recent Sherlock Holmes movie that came out over Christmas. It was, it was okay. The first one was a little bit, bit better. But again, whether it's in written form or, or at the movie theaters, some great Great whodunit movies. You're going all the way back to Hitchcock and, you know, Jimmy Stewart and Vertigo. That was just a tremendous uh, one of those. Name of the Rose is kind of an obscure movie you may not have seen. Sean Connery plays a, a, a priest in the Catholic Church back in the Middle Ages who actually goes and solves crimes that, that occur. Uh, a more recent one, The Usual Suspects, is not a movie I would recommend uh, for all ages. There's some, some very graphic things in it. But it has probably the best twist at the end of a movie I have ever seen. And uh, it, it, there's just something about a, a mystery that gets your attention. You, you kind of want to know, what's the author thinking? Where is this going? Uh, probably about 15 years ago, we had a mystery in our own house that needed to be solved and solved pretty quickly. Uh, I walked into the kitchen and there was a, a black garbage, you know, just a black trash bag that you take out of the trash can and, and you're supposed to take out to the curb. But that's another story. Um, but this trash bag was in my kitchen, and it was moving across the kitchen. It was going from here to over there, all by itself. And this is a mystery. I'm like, I didn't know trash bags were animated. So I, and then I'm thinking, okay, somebody's got a string somewhere. I'm going to be on America's Funniest Home Videos. Nothing, none of that. And then there's actually some noise that's coming out of the trash bag. So if this was like a mystery in a movie, you would see that, and then it would flash back, and it would say like two hours ago. Okay, and you see Tom listening to Cindy, Cindy's my wife, if you, if you don't know her, saying, hey, take that trash out. And Tom's saying, okay, and walking to the back door and opening the door and setting it down and closing it. It is now technically out, okay? So I, I have, I've met the letter of the law. About an hour later, he would then come back and see Tom looking out that same window and seeing starting to pour down rain and go, you know what, I... I've got to take that trash bag to the curb. I'm not going to do it now. But I don't want to take a soggy, nasty, you know, trash bag that's had water all in it. So I bring it back inside, and I set it right inside the back door, and I leave. And I come back later, and it's walking across the, walking across the room. What you wouldn't see, unless in the movie we produced this way, would be while it was outside, the raccoon deciding that it wanted to come in and live inside the trash bag and have a little snack and a little, you know, a little enjoyment. And probably after he got moved inside, he probably thought, this is even better. I'm now I'm warm. This is pretty good. The, the mystery ends with Tom's opening the sliding glass door and kicking both Trash Bag and Raccoon, who now is having a bad experience, a really bad day, uh, over the back porch and down onto the yard and went and got the trash later, which was then scattered everywhere. Uh, some mysteries are good and some mysteries are really goofy. That was a goofy one. But everybody loves to try and figure it out. What's exactly going on here? Well, in Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11... Paul is unpacking this mystery or this quandary that is facing the early church in Rome uh, regarding a two-sided question. And the first side of the question is this. Why has Israel rejected God's Messiah? Why is it that, that the one who has come uh, to the Jewish nation is the long-promised Messiah? Why have his very own people rejected him? And secondly, beyond that, is, is their refusal of God permanent? Is it a done deal? Has God walked away from the nation of Israel and now just concentrating his efforts on the rest of the world? Now, while this seems like a theological nuance, I would argue that it has profound implications. If God has, in fact, um, 
left his people forever, if he, if he said to Israel, you're my people, but now they're not his people, then what does that mean for you and for me if we've said we've put our faith in God through Christ? May someday God say to us, you know, you were, but now you're not anymore. Is God trustworthy? How am I saved? What does it mean for me to actually have eternal life? And can I trust God's word? There's a lot of mystery here that needs to be explained in order for us to know whether or not our faith is in the right place. And Romans 11 verses 25 through 36, I believe, offers the final solution. It it unfolds the mystery completely for all of us to understand the, the redemptive plan of God. So Romans chapter 11 Verses 25 through 36, you can follow along in the the bulletin or on the screen or in your own Bible. Hear the word of God. Paul writing to the church in Rome says, Lest you be wise in your own sight, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards to the gospel, they are enemies of God for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they, may, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Let's pray together for a moment. Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for your truth. Father, we thank you for sharing your grace with us. Lord, we studied earlier... Romans, where where Paul wrote in chapter 5, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Father, we don't deserve your love. We don't deserve your grace. We long to have meaning in our lives. We long to to know that our existence counts for something. We long to know that, that we're not just temporal and it's not just all about accumulating whatever we can for a few short years. Lord, there, there has to be more than that. And, and whether everybody here this morning believes in you or not, we all have that longing in our hearts. We all desire significance in our lives. And so, Father, I pray that as we study your word this morning, that you would open our hearts and minds to what you want us to know. Father, we are significant because you love us. The plan of redemption is for people like us. And so, Father, I pray that you would reveal this mystery to us, reveal this truth to us, make it clear, not because I preach a great sermon, but because you come and speak to your people. Lord, you know I can't do this justice. You know my sin. I pray that you would forgive me. Don't let me stand in the way of people so that they would be confused or or not understanding or heart of heart. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would come and that you would speak to your people. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we're going to get into the mystery in just a second. But before we do, I want to run down just a real quick 
uh, side road that hopefully will help us just a a bit that I, I think it's important to mention before we go on. In verse 25, Paul says, lest you be wise in your own sight, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. And and there are a couple things that Paul is addressing here. The first thing he's saying is we don't need man's reasoning, okay? Anytime that we apply reasoning from simply from a human perspective, when we take God out of the equation, when we remove uh, Jesus Christ from the question, man's answer time and time again leads us to anti-Semitism. All you need to do is look at history and understand that the nation of Israel is the most persecuted group of people that have ever existed on this planet. Not, it, it, it didn't start in Nazi Germany in the 1940s. The nation of Israel has been persecuted for generation after generation after generation. So if we simply apply man's logic here and say, well, well, well the Jewish folks have rejected Jesus, therefore, and we, and we go where man goes, you end up with the Ku Klux Klan. You end up with bigotry. You end up with hatred. You end up with persecution. And so Paul warns the Christians in Rome. He says, be careful. You're not quite as smart as you think you are. You don't understand the whole mystery. And if you don't apply the gospel to this question, you will end up in a bad place. The second thing he mentions is that this is a mystery. This is something that is not clearly known. And when Paul uses the word mystery, and pretty much in all of Scripture, whenever you see this word, which actually isn't very often, it means that it is something that only God can disclose. He must uncover if we're going to comprehend. So, so you're, you know, you're reading your John Grisham novel, and you're in the middle of it, and you're trying to figure out who the bad guys are and the good guys, or the Robert Ludlum novel, and, and you know, he's got, all, he's got you know, nuns leaning out of second-story windows shooting newsies. He's, just, he's really off the wall. And you know, who are the good guys and who are the bad guys? Well, un- until the author tells you, you can guess. You know, it's kind of fun if you're watching a murder mystery on, you know, to stop it and say, okay, who thinks what right before the end? But at the end of the day, it's just an ed- educated guess. Until the author reveals the true identity, the true story, we won't know. And that's the language that Paul used. So he says, not only should you not apply your own reasoning, but you need to ask God to reveal this to you. Because he's the one who can make the mystery clear and plain. Well, let's come back then to what we said the mystery. It's two questions. Why has Israel rejected the Messiah? And is their refusal permanent? And I want to start with that first question. Why has Israel rejected the Messiah? And the answer may be a bit of a surprise. It's part of God's plan to bring salvation to all of mankind. This, this, this rejection, this momentary rejection of the nation of Israel is actually in God's economy as he thinks about how he's going to bring salvation. Now we're going to go back to Genesis 22 for just a second. God is having a conversation with Abraham. And God and Abraham have been in a relationship for several years. Isaac has been born. Uh, Abraham has just taken Isaac to offer him, and God has provided the ram. And now God says to Abraham, through your offspring, and that's not offspring plural, it's offspring singular in the Hebrew, through your offspring, through one of your descendants, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. All the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. So somehow... Through one of Abraham's offspring, this salvation is going to reach the entire world. Well, how does the rejection by the Jewish people fit into that? Well, in verse 28, Paul says, they're actually enemies right now for your sake. That's an odd statement. That that seems a bit off to us. 
What Paul is saying is them rejecting Christ right now is actually aided in your salvation. How is that possible? He goes on in verses 30 and 31 to say, you have received mercy because of their disobedience. And friends, okay, this, this is a good mystery because this on the surface does not make sense. How could someone else's unbelief, how could someone else's disobedience lead to me being in a relationship with Jesus Christ? Well, what if I said to you this morning that there's a very good chance that any number of people in this room, and I would guess at least a dozen, if not more, are Christians today, if you're a believer in Jesus, you are a disciple of Jesus today because of a woman who taught Sunday school in Southern California in the 1920s and 1930s and 1940s. She taught a high school boys Sunday school class for almost 30 years, and chances are your faith is directly connected to that Sunday school class. You would go, really? That seems a bit far-fetched. Prove it, okay? Well, I will. Bear with me for just a few minutes. Her name is Henrietta Mears, and she taught Sunday school in the 20s, 30s, and 40s at Hollywood Prez in Southern California. Now, how is the Jewish unbelief tied to the Roman Gentiles becoming Christians? Let me walk you through the book of Acts for just a few minutes. And I don't do this very often. This is a little bit more of a teaching lecture format today than I typically do, but it's important. In Acts chapter 1, Jesus, if I, I should have used red ink. Okay, so if you have red ink in your Bible, this is in red. Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he's about to ascend into heaven. And he's got the group around him. They're just outside of Jerusalem. And he says, you're going to receive power from the Holy Spirit. And you'll be my witnesses. You're going to take this message of the gospel to Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now, that's pretty clear, okay? I would say there's not a whole lot of confusion of that. If I'm a disciple sitting there, if I'm Peter or James or John or one of these guys, I'm going, Jerusalem, got it, Judea, got it, Samaria, got it, ends of the earth. Okay, geography, I'm good, okay? There's nothing confusing about that. Then we move over to Acts chapter 2. And in Acts chapter 2, uh, this is just a, a small portion of that section of Scripture. It's talking about the church. So we've got the church in Jerusalem. I don't know if it's First Pres or First Baptist or First Methodist, but it's, it's the very first church ever. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to prayer, and, and a whole bunch of other things. I'm uh, keeping it as brief as possible. All who believe were together, day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. So Jerusalem is beginning to get it. The gospel is, is, is the roots are sinking in, and we can put a check mark by Jerusalem and say, okay, we, we're off to a good start, Lord Jesus, all right? That's in chapter 2. And then chapter 3 and chapter 4 and chapter 5 and chapter 6 and chapter 7, all of those were still in Jerusalem. The, the message is stalled out. Not in that people aren't coming to faith in Jerusalem, but everybody's staying in Jerusalem. It's like this is, you know, we're coming to faith and, and now we're going to get in our little church and we're going to stay right here. And Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth are kind of on the back burner until Acts chapter 8. And in Acts chapter 8, we read that when Stephen was murdered, the very next verse says, and there arose that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. God had to actually bring persecution on his own church in order to get them off the dime. And isn't that true of Christians? Don't we want to be comfortable more than anything else? Don't we want to be around our little Christian friends and talk our little Christian talk and and, and have our little code words that nobody else understands because it makes us feel really safe and secure? And And we love Jesus, 
and, and, and we're submitted to him and we put our faith in him. I'm not saying that we're just playing church. I, I understand that our faith is authentic, but don't we like to like, feel safe and, and good around other people who think like we think? Same thing was going on in the first century. And God said, y'all got to go. Y'all got to go. And they went, got it, and didn't go. And finally said, you're going to go. And he actually brought persecution on his own people so that he would scatter them in order that the gospel might advance. Now you go to Romans chapter 9, and there's a guy named Ananias, and he is, he's sitting in his house praying. He's having his quiet time. Good guy, minding his own business, and the Lord appears to him. And he says, I want you to go, and I want you to talk to this guy named Saul um, because he is, he's in town, and he's having a hard time. And Ananias says, Lord, I've heard how much he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. In other words, Ananias says, Lord, I think you've made a mistake. I mean, I know you're God. I don't want to be disrespectful, but you want me to go talk with Saul. This is like Moses in the Old Testament. Here am I, send Aaron. You know, I, I, God, I got another guy that would be perfect for this guy. job. Saul's the guy that's killing Christians. Saul is the guy that's putting Christians in jail. And God says, Ananias, be still for a second. Would, just listen, okay? It may seem a mystery to you, but I have a plan. I want you to go. For he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Do you see the ever-expanding nature of the gospel? So Ananias goes to Saul. Saul becomes Paul, and he becomes the greatest church planter the world's ever known. Fast forward to Acts chapter 13. They are in Antioch, and, and, and Paul is preaching. And it says in the next Sabbath, Almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. Think about this. There's like 28,000 people in Kirkwood. Think if somebody came to Kirkwood to speak and pretty much the whole town showed up. I, don't, I guess we'd have to go to the park. I don't know where else we could prob- possibly put that many people. I probably couldn't even fit in the park. Probably have to go to a stadium somewhere. The entire town is coming out. Why? To hear the gospel. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God would be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles, for the Lord has commanded us. And then he quotes out of Isaiah, I have made you a light to the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Paul got it. He understood the mystery of God. He didn't, he didn't stop speaking to the Jewish people. He didn't stop speaking to the nation of Israel, but he said, we're going to the Gentiles as well because that's God's plan for salvation. And you're reviling me and you're, you're objecting to me and you're persecuting me is actually driving the gospel to those who otherwise would have never heard it. One other passage in Acts chapter 19. We're in Ephesus now, and it says that Paul entered the synagogue and for three months he spoke boldly. He's in the synagogue. He is in the heart of the Jewish community. The people of Israel gather at the synagogue on a daily basis. So Paul has not rejected the Jewish people because God has not rejected them. And he's boldly reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, he withdrew and for two years reasoned at the hall of Tyrannus so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. You see, friends, even people's unbelief can be used by God to move his kingdom forward. And all of this little history lesson that I've given you in the book of Acts points us to the fact that that we're not quite as smart as we think we are. That this mystery of God is for the purpose of redemption and salvation. And have we understood that? 
Why would we even ask the question, has God rejected Israel? Or why has Israel rejected God? Because God can use even something which seems as as blatantly obvious as as absolute rejection to further the gospel. So I, I asked the question earlier about the Sunday school teacher. So we'll start to reveal some of this mystery. Anybody in here put their faith in Christ through young life? Anybody, Young Life? Uh, yeah, Warner, I don't know where you're going, but you had to raise your hand. Okay. Uh, anybody here come to Christ through uh, Campus Crusade? Okay, we got a few Crusade folks. Anybody here um, ever come? Maybe you came to Christ because you heard somebody who was a preacher that had graduated from Covenant Seminary um, or have, or have uh, anybody that's benefited spiritually from Covenant Seminary. Anybody? Okay, good. Um, Henrietta Mears taught a high school boy Sunday school class. Two of the boys that she had uh, in this class were the Rayburn brothers, one of whom founded Covenant Seminary, the other of whom founded Young Life. So if you came to Christ through Young Life or or through somebody that teaches a Covenant Seminary, and I'm from Covenant Seminary, so if you came to Christ here, there's a direct there. Bill Bright was also in that Sunday school class, founder of Campus Crusade. Dick Halverson, I didn't mention, Dick Halverson was a chaplain of the Senate for over 25 years. All those people came out of Henrietta Mears' Sunday school class, and all of them point to her as the person who led them to Christ. You just never know, (laughs) because it's partially a mystery. But it is a mystery that has a plan behind it. And none none of what happened in Acts and none of what happens in your life or my life is by happenstance. And so when we ask the question, why has Israel rejected God's Messiah? We must see it in the context of God's plan for salvation and understand that he can use even unbelief to further the gospel. But then the question becomes, the second half of that coin is, well, is the rejection the last word? Is is Israel lost? Is the gospel a lost cause on the nation of Israel? And Paul would say unequivocally, no. Look at verse 25. This is a partial hardening. It's not a complete hardening. It it, it is temporary in its scope. It's temporary in its influence, and it's limited in its nature. God has power over unbelief. And so this is something that is happening, but it is not outside of God's control. It's actually within his plan. Verses 25 and 26, Paul leads to the conclusion, therefore all of Israel will be saved. Now, you can make too much of this verse and you can make too little of it. So I want to pause here for just a minute. If you read this verse and say, well, that means that every person who is of Jewish heritage will eventually come to faith in Christ. That would be making too much of this verse. To say, oh, there must be a special time right before the world ends and Jesus comes back where the entire nation of Israel is going to put his faith in Christ. No, Paul's not talking about eschatology. He's not talking about end times. To put that on this verse would be a gross misinterpretation. That's not what it's, that's saying too much. To say, you know what, Paul has identified Israel really as those who are really Christians. And so, yeah, there may be a, a handful of Jews in there. That's saying too little. It's making light of the power of God. Paul is saying all of Israel, in the same time you or I might say, hey, um, what do you think? Is the United States a Christian nation? Well, by that you're not saying, do you think every person that lives in the United States of America is a disciple of Jesus? You're talking about a certain morality, a certain type of teaching that has come out of the church over generations. And older folks tend to say of younger folks, well, they're not a Christian nation anymore. That's the, the, the tone in which Paul's saying. He's saying Israel isn't excluded There are representatives from all of Israel that will be part of the kingdom of God. He goes on in verse 31 to say, they also may now receive mercy. He's very clear that they're actually the salvation process is working in the nation of Israel, even as Paul is penning this letter. 
In verse 32, he, he includes them with the rest of mankind. All are disobedient. All receive mercy. Through our disobedience, God allows us to feel the ramifications of our sin. He doesn't just take us out from under that. I've, I've battled the flu last week. I can't tell you the last time I missed three days of work. I was, I was face down in my bed. I thought I was going to die. And, uh, and Cindy, you know, she's kind of nice, but she doesn't have a lot of patience with people that are sick. And so she'd kind of pat me on the head and leave. And guess where, guess where I'm going right after church? I'm getting back home because Cindy's sick. And I'm going to go and pat her on the head and I'm going to go bowling. But um, <laughs> nobody's ever accused me of having a gift of compassion. <laughs> I'm going to do more than pat her on the head. Um, I'll rub her back for a couple minutes. Um, what was I talking about? But we all feel the ramifications of sin. Even when I put my faith in Christ, I, I don't stop feeling that pain. I, 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 if I make a bad choice, if I gossip about somebody, if, I, if I'm rude to someone, God allows me to experience the, the negativity of that so I can see the mercy. And Paul says the Jews are included in all of that. The nation of Israel is part of that. Rejection is not the last word. Rejection does not get the last word. In fact, it's used by God to bring the gospel to the world, and that's the answer to the mystery. The answer to the mystery is mercy. Now, I'm thrilled that Paul used two words that started with M in this text. It, it flows nicely off the tongue, but it's true. The mercy of God is why all of this is happening. Why is it that some folks have rejected Christ? Because the mercy of God is going to work in, in a different way, even in that context. So, Instead of questioning the mercy of God, let's look, at, let's look at the makeup of the mercy for just a minute. I want to look at the quantity and the quality of the mercy for just a couple of minutes. In verses 30 and 31, in talking about the quantity, is there enough mercy? Does God sprinkle it around, little for you, little for you, little, oh, out, sorry, you don't get any. Uh, oh, I found a little bit more, you can have some. If God sprinkles lightly mercy, you and I are big, big trouble. We have no hope. Does God have mercy in abundance is the question. Verse 30 and 31, you were disobedient. They are disobedient, but all need mercy. You've received mercy. They are receiving mercy. Not a little bit of mercy, but everyone who needs mercy will have the amount they need in order to experience salvation. Several years ago when one of our kids was in high school, uh, got in trouble for cheating on a test by helping a friend get the right answers. They had the right answers, but, but a friend of theirs didn't. And so they let the friend see their paper. And when he got caught, well, I said he, so you know it's not Katie. And who are we kidding? Jordan's by far the smartest person in our family. So it was Jordan. Anybody that would cheat off of me or Nate, it has no common sense at all. Um, yeah, it's B. I'm sure it's B. <laughs> um, so Jordan, Jordan lets a, a hockey buddy his see the answers, and, and the teacher sees them because Jordan's not really subtle, and gets in trouble. And Jordan's like, I don't get it, Dad. Why? I, I, I was just helping a buddy. I said, son, it's cheating. You gave somebody something they didn't earn, they didn't deserve, they didn't work for, and it wasn't right. And you're in as much trouble as he is. And I think it finally started to click with him. But friends, a lot of us kind of go through life thinking, well, everybody needs mercy. You need a lot, and I need a little bit. And I would encourage you to go back and look in the mirror again. And go back again and again and again until you come back and say, oh my goodness, I can't believe how much mercy I actually need. Paul says everybody is disobedient. 
verse 32, all disobey, all need God's mercy. And his response is not to give us a tiny bit and forgive us occasionally, but his response is through Jesus, the answer for all of our sin, all of our brokenness. There is more than enough mercy for you and for me. In verse 36, Paul says, for from him and through him and to him are all things. Mercy is encompassed completely in God's being. There is not a little bit. There is an ocean of mercy. There is no limit to his compassion for people. He is not limited by time or by space. He's not limited by my sin or by your sin. God, the, the quantity of God's mercy is more than enough for you and for me. But is it the right kind of mercy? Is it the mercy that will stick to your ribs? <laughs> Is it the mercy that will guarantee eternal life for you and for me, for all who put their faith in Christ? And I want to bring you back to verse 29. And much like Romans 8.1, this is a verse that you should memorize. I haven't said that very often in this study, but this is a verse that every one of us should memorize. Uh, Romans 11.29, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. The gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. What's the quality of this mercy? Well, understand this verse, friends. What Paul is writing here is that God is giving grace. God is giving mercy. That's his gifts and his calling. Those are tied to your salvation, right? My salvation. They are unequivocal. They are without apology. Somebody in my generation or a little bit older may say, God saves you and he saves me and he makes no bones about it. He says, that's what I do. That's the business I'm in. That's that I am. I am a God who saves, and I and I don't hide, and I don't I don't I don't pretend like it's not a big deal. I stand up and I unequivocally say people are lost and they're going to die and spend eternity apart from me if I don't intervene. And my son went to the cross so that I could provide salvation through him, so that people who were lost could be found, and those who were suffering from death could receive life, and those who were stained with sin could be given robes of righteousness, robes of purity. People that were orphans could be adopted as my sons and daughters of God. And that's who I am. And that's what I do. And if you come to me, that's the one to whom you come. The quality of my mercy knows no limits. And praise be to God this morning, friends, that you and I are recipients of that irrevocable mercy. This is who I am. This is what I do. And I will not change which is absolutely vital. Because if you look at this tied to verse 33, Paul breaks out into song and he says, Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. I, I would suggest to you that is extraordinarily poetic language, but you better take a good hard look at what he's actually saying. Paul is saying that God knows you inside out. There is nothing in creation that is hidden from his knowledge and his wisdom. You guys know some of the sin in my life because every once in a while I'll stand up and talk about it. But you don't know everything. And I don't know all the sin in your life. And if we shot your picture up on the screen and then we're going to scroll through the sins, you'd be the first person out the door and you probably would never come back. Guess what? God already knows all of that. He looks at you and he looks at me and he sees us for who we are. And we are, as the movie says, despicable me. And you know what his response is? I love you. I'm crazy about you. 
I see you for who you are. I know what you've hidden from everybody else. It's clear as day to me. Nothing in creation is hidden from me. But I'm a God of mercy. I'm a God of compassion. Even people's disobedience can lead to salvation. That's the mystery revealed. The quality of God's mercy is that there is no flaw in his judgment. There is no lack in his plan. There's no limit to his resources. And he will accomplish salvation. And for that, we join with Paul in our response. How do, you, how, do you, how do you respond to a God who says, I see all of your garbage and then some, and you are precious to me? I think it's why Paul ends Romans 11 the way he ends it and the way we're going to end it this morning. Seven simple words. To him be glory forever. Amen. Will you pray with me? Father God, the one who is, is rich and wisdom and knowledge means you know us. You know us intimately. Not the, the nice us that dress up and, and act like everything okay is okay, but you see us for who we are, gossips and slanders and haters and people filled with lust and greed and anger and resentment. And in spite of all that, you bring us your mercy and you love us. You call us your children. Father, we don't always understand how you work seems kind of quirky to us that a, that a high school Sunday school teacher could have a direct impact on, on salvation of people sitting in this room some 70 years later. Father, help us not to apply man's philosophy to your plan of salvation, but may we see the mystery revealed. May we see the mercy of God and may we accept it for ourselves and may we live it in front of the world that so desperately needs to see and experience your grace through Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.